Welcome, and thank you for joining us for Bygone Tales, Episode 11. I had intended in this episode to feature a few stories by the author Jacques Futrell. However, since Thanksgiving is right around the corner, I thought I might delve into a little bit of history of the holiday. In the middle of the American Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln, prompted by a series of editorials written by Sarah Hale, proclaimed a national day of Thanksgiving to be celebrated on the final Thursday in November. This document, written by Secretary of State William H. Seward, reads as follows. The year that is drawing towards its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. To these bounties, which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come, others have been added, which are of so extraordinary a nature, which they cannot fail to penetrate and soften even the heart which is habitually insensible to the ever-watchful providence of Almighty God. In the midst of a civil war of unequaled magnitude and severity, which has sometimes seemed to foreign states to invite and to provoke their aggression, peace has been preserved with all nations, order has been maintained, the laws have been respected and obeyed, and harmony has prevailed everywhere except in the theater of military conflict. While that theater has been greatly contracted by the advancing armies and navies of the Union, needful diversions of wealth and of strength from the fields of peaceful industry to this national defense have not arrested the plow, the shuttle, or the ship. The axe has enlarged the borders of our settlements, and the mines, as well of iron and coal as of the precious metals, have yielded even more abundantly than theretofore. Population has steadily increased, notwithstanding the waste that has been made in the camp, the siege, and the battlefield, and the country rejoicing in the consciousness of augmented strength and vigor is permitted to expect continuance of years with large increase of freedom. No human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who while, de who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy. It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and voice by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States, and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands, to set apart and observe that last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. And I recommend to them that while offering up the ascriptions justly due to him for such a singular deliverance and blessing, they do also with humble penitence for our national perseverance and disobedience, commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in this lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged, and fervently implore the interposition of the Almighty Hand to heal the wounds of the nation, and to restore it as soon as may be consistent with the divine purpose of the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union. In testimony whereof I have hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the United States to be affixed.
done at the city of Washington this third day of October in the year of our Lord, 1,863, and of the independence of the United States, the 88th. Proclamation of President Abraham Lincoln, October 3, 1963. My desire since the beginning of this podcast has been to keep the podcast out of the realm of politics. However, in the current political environment, with such division striking the country, I thought it might not be a bad idea to present a couple of stories from a veteran of the Civil War, Ambrose Bierce, as a reminder to us all of the kind of horrors that we can encounter if we let this division go too far. The kind of horrors that can occur when we stop thinking of people on the other side of an opinion as human beings and see them only as enemies. I want to give a a warning to, to listeners. Both of these stories, while not containing any profanity, have some extremely brutal aspects and imagery to them. I guess this is my way of saying uh, parental discretion is advised. So without further ado, let's get on to the stories. In this episode, I will not be following up the stories with any history about them. I think the impact of the stories uh, speaks for themselves. I would like to mention that, as usual, you can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, and Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. The Affair at Coulter's Notch by Ambrose Bierce Do you think, Colonel, that your brave Coulter would like to put one of his guns in here? The general asked. He was apparently not altogether serious. It certainly did not seem a place where any artillerist, however brave, would like to put a gun. The colonel thought that possibly his division commander meant good-humoredly to intimate that in a recent conversation between them, Captain Coulter's courage had been too highly extolled. General, he replied warmly, Coulter would like to put a gun anywhere within reach of those people, with a motion of his hand in the direction of the enemy. It is the only place, said the general. He was serious then. The place was a depression a notch in the sharp crest of a hill. It was a pass, and through it ran a turnpike, which, reaching this highest point in its course by a sinuous ascent through a thin forest, made a similar, though less steep, descent toward the enemy. For a mile to the left and a mile to the right, the ridge, though occupied by Federal infantry lying close behind the sharp crest and appearing as if held in place by atmospheric pressure, was inaccessible to artillery. There was no place but the bottom of the notch, and that was barely wide enough for the roadbed. From the Confederate side, this point was commanded by two batteries posted on a slightly lower elevation beyond a creek, and a half mile away. All the guns but one were masked by the trees of an orchard. That one, it seemed a bit of an impudence, was on an open lawn directly in front of a rather grandiose building, the planter's dwelling. The gun was safe enough in its exposure, but only because the Federal infantry had been forbidden to fire. Coulter's Notch, it came to be called so, was not, that pleasant summer afternoon, a place where one would like to put a gun. 
Three or four dead horses lay there, sprawling in the road. Three or four dead men in a trim row at one side of it, and a little back down the hill. All but one were cavalrymen belonging to the Federal advance. One was a quartermaster. The general commanding the division and the colonel commanding the brigade, with their staffs and escorts, had ridden into the notch to have a look at the enemy's guns, which had straightaway obscured themselves in towering clouds of smoke. It was hardly profitable to be curious about guns which had the trick of the cuttlefish, and the season of observation had been brief. At its conclusion, a short remove backward from where it began, occurred the conversation already partly reported. It is the only place, the general repeated thoughtfully, to get at them. The colonel looked at him gravely. There is room for only one gun, general. One against twelve. That is true, for only one at a time, said the commander, with something like, yet not altogether like, a smile. But then, your brave Coulter, a whole battery in himself... The tone of irony was now unmistakable. It angered the colonel, but he did not know what to say. The spirit of military subordination is not favorable to retort, nor even to deprecation. At this moment, a young officer of artillery came riding slowly up the road, attended by his bugler. It was Captain Coulter. He could not have been more than 23 years of age. He was of medium height, but very slender and lithe and sat his horse with something of the air of a civilian. In face, he was of a type singularly unlike the men about him. Thin, high-nosed, gray-eyed, with a slight blonde mustache, and long, rather straggling hair of the same color. There was an apparent negligence in his attire. His cap was worn with the visor a trifle askew. His coat was buttoned only at the sword belt, showing a considerable expanse of white shirt tolerably clean for that stage of the campaign. But the negligence was all in his dress and bearing. In his face was a look of intense interest in his surroundings. His gray eyes, which seemed occasionally to strike right and left across the landscape, like searchlights, were for the most part fixed upon the sky beyond the notch. Until he should arrive at the summit of the road, there was nothing else in that direction to see. As he came opposite his division and brigade commanders at the roadside, he saluted mechanically and was about to pass on. The colonel signed to him to halt. Captain Coulter, he said, the enemy has twelve pieces over there on the next ridge. If I rightly understand the general, he directs that you bring up a gun and engage them. There was a blank silence. The general looked stolidly at a distant regiment swarming slowly up the hill through rough undergrowth like a torn and draggled cloud of blue smoke. The captain appeared not to have observed him. Presently, the captain spoke, slowly and with apparent effort. On the next ridge, did you say, sir? Are the guns near the house? Ah, you have been over this road before, directly at the house. And is it necessary to engage them? The order is imperative. His voice was husky and broken. He was visibly paler. The colonel was astonished and mortified. He stole a glance at the commander. In that set, immobile face was no sign. It was as hard as bronze. A moment later, the general rode away, followed by his staff and escort. 
The colonel, humiliated and indignant, was about to order Captain Coulter in arrest, when the later spoke a few words in a low tone to his bugler, saluted, and rode straight forward into the notch, where, presently at the summit of the road, his field glass at his eyes, he showed against the sky, he and his horse, sharply defined and statuesque. The bugler had dashed down at speed and disappeared behind the wood. Presently his bugle was heard singing in the cedars, and in an incredibly short time, a single gun with its caisson, each drawn by six horses and manned by its full complement of gunners, came bounding and banging up the grade in a storm of dust, unlimbered under cover, and was run forward by hand to the fatal crest among the dead horses. A gesture of the captain's arm, some strangely agile movements of the men in loading, and almost before the troops along the way had ceased to hear the rattle of the wheels, a great white cloud sprang forward down the slope, and with a deafening report, the affair at Coulter's Notch had begun. It is not intended to relate in detail the progress and incidents of that ghastly contest, a contest without vicissitudes, its alterations only different degrees of despair. Almost the instant when Captain Coulter's gun blew its challenging cloud, twelve answering clouds rolled upward from among the trees around the plantation house. A deep, multiple report roared back like a broken echo. And thenceforth to the end, the Federal cannoneers fought their hopeless battle in an atmosphere of living iron whose thoughts were lightning and whose deeds were death. Unwilling to see the effects which he could not aid and the slaughter which he could not stay, the colonel ascended the ridge at a point a quarter of a mile to the left, whence the notch, itself invisible, but pushing up successive masses of smoke, seemed the crater of a volcano in thundering eruption. With his glass he watched the enemy's guns, noting as he could the effects of Coulter's fire, if Coulter still lived to direct it. He saw that the Federal gunners, ignoring those of the enemy's pieces whose positions could be determined by their smoke only, gave their whole attention to the one that maintained its place in the open, the lawn in front of the house. Over and about that hardy piece the shells exploded at intervals of a few seconds. Some exploded in the house, as could be seen by thin ascensions of smoke from the breached roof. Figures of prostrate men and horses were plainly visible. "'If our fellows are doing so good work with a single gun,' said the colonel to an aide who had happened to be nearest, "'they must be suffering like the devil from twelve. "'Go down and present the commander of that piece with my congratulations on the accuracy of his fire.' Turning to his adjutant general, he said, "'Did you observe Coulter's damned reluctance to obey orders?' "'Yes, sir, I did.' Well, say nothing about it, please. I don't think the general will care to make any accusations. He will probably have enough to do in explaining his own connection with this uncommon way of amusing the rear guard of a retreating enemy. A young officer approached from below, climbing, breathless, up the acclivity. Almost before he had saluted, he gasped out, Colonel, I am directed by Colonel Harmon to say that the enemy's guns are within easy reach of our rifles and most of them visible from several points along the ridge. The brigade commander looked at him without a trace of interest in his expression. I know it, he said quietly. The young adjutant was visibly embarrassed. 
Colonel Harmon would like to have permission to silence those guns, he stammered. So should I, the colonel said in the same tone. Present my compliments to Colonel Harmon and say to him that the general's orders for the infantry not to fire are still in force. The adjutant saluted and retired. The colonel ground his heel into the earth and turned to look again at the enemy's guns. Colonel, said the adjutant general, I don't know that I ought to say anything, but there is something wrong in all this. Do you happen to know that Captain Coulter is from the South? No. Was he, indeed? I heard that last summer the division which the general then commanded was in the vicinity of Coulter's home, camped there for weeks, and... Listen, said the colonel, interrupting with an upward gesture. Do you hear that? That was the silence of the federal gun. The staff, the orderlies, the lines of infantry behind the crest, all had heard, and were looking curiously in the direction of the crater, whence no smoke now ascended except desultory cloudlets from the enemy's shells. Then came the blare of a bugle, a faint rattle of wheels, a minute later the sharp reports recommenced with double activity. The demolished gun had been replaced with a sound one. Yes, said the adjutant general, resuming his narrative. The general made the acquaintance of Coulter's family. There was trouble. I don't know the exact nature of it. Something about Coulter's wife. She is a red-hot secessionist, as they all are, except Coulter himself. But she is a good wife and high-bred lady. There was a complaint to army headquarters. The general was transferred to this division. It is odd that Coulter's battery should afterward have been assigned to it. The colonel had risen from the rock upon which he had been sitting. His eyes were blazing with generous indignation. See here, Morrison, he said, looking his gossiping staff officer straight in the face. Did you get that story from a gentleman or a liar? I don't want to say how I got it, colonel, unless it's necessary. He was blushing a trifle. But I'll stake my life upon its truth in the main. The colonel turned toward a small knot of officers some distance away. Lieutenant Williams, he shouted. One of the officers detached himself from the group and, coming forward, saluted, saying, Pardon me, colonel. I thought you had been informed. Williams is dead down there by the gun. What can I do, sir? Lieutenant Williams was the aide who had had the pleasure of conveying to the officer in charge of the gun his brigade commander's congratulations. Go, said the colonel, and direct the withdrawal of that gun instantly. No, I'll go myself. He strode down the declivity toward the rear of the notch at a breakneck pace, over rocks and through brambles, followed by his little retinue in tumultuous disorder. At the foot of the declivity they mounted their waiting animals and took to the road at a lively trot, rounding a bend and into the notch. The spectacle which they encountered there was appalling. Within that defile, barely broad enough for a single gun, were piled the wrecks of no fewer than four. They had noted the silencing of only the last one disabled. There had been a lack of men to replace it quickly with another. The debris lay on both sides of the road. The men had managed to keep an open way between, through which the fifth piece was now firing. The men... They looked like demons of the pit. All were hatless, 
all stripped to the waist, their reeking skins black with blotches of powder and spattered with gouts of blood. They worked like madmen with rammer and cartridge, lever and lanyard. They set their swollen shoulders and bleeding hands against the wheels at each recoil and heaved the heavy gun back to its place. There were no commands. In that awful environment of whooping shot, exploding shells, shrieking fragments of iron, and flying splinters of wood, none could have been heard. Officers, if officers there were, were indistinguishable. All worked together, each while he lasted, governed by the eye. When the gun was sponged, it was loaded. When loaded, aimed and fired. The colonel observed something new to his military experience, something horrible and unnatural. The gun was bleeding at the mouth. In temporary default of water, the man sponging had dipped his sponge into a pool of comrades' blood. In all this work, there was no clashing. The duty of the instant was obvious. When one fell, another, looking a trifle cleaner, seemed to rise from the earth in the dead man's tracks and fall in his turn. With the ruined guns lay the ruined men, alongside the wreckage, under it, and atop it. And back down the road, a ghastly procession crept on hands and knees such of the wounded as were able to move. The colonel, he had compassionately sent his cavalcade to the right about, had to ride over those who were entirely dead in order not to crush those who were partly alive. Into that hell he tranquilly held his way, rode up alongside the gun, and in the obscurity of the last discharge tapped upon the cheek the man holding the rammer, who straightway fell, thinking himself killed. A fiend, seven times damned, sprang out of the smoke to take his place, but paused and gazed up at the mounted officer with an unearthly regard, his teeth flashing between his black lips, his eyes fierce and expanded, burning like coals beneath his bloody brow. The colonel made an authoritative gesture and pointed to the rear. The fiend bowed in token of obedience. It was Captain Coulter. Simultaneously with the colonel's arresting sign, silence fell upon the whole field of action. The procession of missiles no longer streamed into that defile of death, for the enemy also had ceased firing. His army had been gone for hours, and the commander of his rear guard, who had held his position perilously long in hopes to silence the federal fire, at that strange moment had silenced his own. I was not aware of the breadth of my authority, said the colonel to anybody, riding forward to that crest to see what had really happened. An hour later, his brigade was in bivouac on the enemy's ground, and its idlers were examining with something of awe as the fateful inspect a saint's relics, a score of straddling dead horses and three disabled guns, all spiked. The fallen men had been carried away. Their torn and broken bodies would have given too great satisfaction. Naturally, the colonel established himself and his military family in the plantation house. It was somewhat shattered, but it was better than the open air. The furniture was greatly deranged and broken. Walls and ceilings were knocked away here and there, and a lingering odor of powder smoke was everywhere. The beds, the closets of women's clothing, the cupboards were not greatly damaged. 
The new tenants, for a night, made themselves comfortable, and the virtual effacement of Coulter's battery supplied them with an interesting topic. During supper, an orderly of the escort showed himself into the dining room and asked permission to speak to the colonel. "'What is it, Barber?' said the officer pleasantly, having overheard the request. "'Colonel, there is something wrong in the cellar. I don't know what. Somebody's there. I was down there rummaging about.' I will go down and see, said a staff officer, rising. So will I, the colonel said. Let the others remain. Lead on, orderly. They took a candle from the table and descended the cellar steps, the orderly invisible trepidation. The candle made but a feeble light, but presently, as they advanced, its narrow circle of illumination revealed a human figure seated on the ground against the black stone wall which they were skirting. Its knees elevated, its head bowed sharply forward. The face, which should have been seen in profile, was invisible, for this man was bent so far forward that his long hair concealed it. And strange to relate, the beard of a much darker hue fell in a great tangled mass and lay along the ground at his side. They involuntarily paused. Then the colonel, taking the candle from the orderly's shaking hand, approached the man and attentively considered him. The long, dark beard was the hair of a woman, dead. The dead woman clasped in her arms a dead babe. Both were clasped in the arms of the man, pressed against his breast, against his lips. There was blood in the hair of the woman. There was blood in the hair of the man. A yard away, near an irregular depression in the beaten earth which formed the cellar's floor, fresh excavation with a convex bit of iron, having jagged edges, visible in one of the sides, lay an infant's foot. The colonel held the light as high as he could. The floor of the room above was broken through, the splinters pointing at all angles downward. This casemate is not bomb-proof said the colonel gravely. It did not occur to him that his summing up of the matter had any levity in it. They stood about the group a while in silence. The staff officer was thinking of his unfinished supper, the orderly of what might possibly be in one of the casks on the other side of the cellar. Suddenly, the man whom they had thought dead raised his head and gazed tranquilly into their faces. His complexion was coal-black, the cheeks were apparently tattooed in irregular, sinuous lines from the eyes downward. The lips, too, were white like those of a stage negro. There was blood upon his forehead. The staff officer drew back a pace, the orderly two paces. "'What are you doing here, my man?' said the colonel, unmoved. "'This house belongs to me, sir,' was the reply, civilly delivered. "'To you.' Ah, I see. And these? My wife and child. I am Captain Coulter. Chickamauga by Ambrose Bierce one sunny afternoon, a child strayed from its rude home in a small field and entered a forest unobserved. It was happy in a new sense of freedom from control, happy in the opportunity of exploration and adventure, 
For this child spirit in bodies of its ancestors had for thousands of years been trained to memorable feats of discovery and conquest, victories and battles whose crucial moments were centuries, whose victors' camps were cities of hewn stone. From the cradle of its race, it had conquered its way through two continents, and passing a great sea, had penetrated a third, there to be born to war and dominion as a heritage. The child was a boy aged about six years, the son of a poor planter. In his younger manhood, the father had been a soldier, had fought against naked savages, and followed the flag of his country into the capital of a civilized race to the far south. In the peaceful life of a planter, the warrior fire survived. Once kindled, it is never extinguished. The man loved military books and pictures, and the boy had understood enough to make himself a wooden sword, though even the eye of his father would hardly have known it for what it was. This weapon he now bore bravely, as became the son of an heroic race, and pausing now and again in the sunny space of the forest, assumed, with some exaggeration, the postures of aggression and defense he had been taught by the engraver's art. Made reckless by the ease with which he overcame invisible foes attempting to stay his advance, he committed the common enough military error of pushing the pursuit to a dangerous extreme, until he found himself upon the margin of a wide but shallow brook, whose rapid waters barred his direct advance against the flying foe that had crossed with illogical ease. But the intrepid victor was not to be baffled. The spirit of the race which had passed the great sea burned unconquerable in that small breast and would not be denied. Finding a place where some boulders in the bed of the stream lay but a step or leap apart, he made his way across and fell again upon the rear guard of his imaginary foe, putting all to the sword. Now that the battle had been won, prudence required that he withdraw to his base of operations. Alas, like many a mightier conqueror, and like one, the mightiest, he could not curb the lust for war, nor learn that tempted fate will leave the loftiest star. Advancing from the bank of the creek, he suddenly found himself confronted with a new and more formidable enemy. In the path that he was following sat bolt upright, with ears erect and paws suspended before it, a rabbit. With a startled cry, the child turned and fled. He knew not in what direction, calling with inarticulate cries for his mother, weeping, stumbling, his tender skin cruelly torn by brambles, his little heart beating hard with terror, breathless, blind with tears, lost in the forest. Then, for more than an hour, he wandered with erring feet through the tangled undergrowth, till at last, overcome by fatigue, he lay down in a narrow space between two rocks. Within a few yards of the stream and still grasping his toy sword, no longer a weapon but a companion, sobbed himself to sleep. The wood birds sang merrily above his head. The squirrels, whisking their bravery of tail, ran barking from tree to tree, unconscious of the pity of it, and somewhere far away was a strange, muffled thunder, as if the partridges were drumming in celebration of nature's victory over the son of her immemorial enslavers. 
and back at the little plantation where white men and black were hastily searching the fields and hedges in alarm, a mother's heart was breaking for her missing child. Hours passed, and then the little sleeper rose to his feet. The chill of the evening was in his limbs, the fear of the gloom in his heart. But he had rested, and he no longer wept. With some blind instinct which impelled him to action, he struggled through the undergrowth about him and came to a more open ground. On his right, the brook. To the left, a gentle acclivity studded with infrequent trees, over all the gathering gloom of twilight. A thin, ghostly mist rose along the water. It frightened and repelled him. Instead of recrossing in the direction whence he had come, he turned his back upon it and went forward toward the dark, enclosing wood. Suddenly he saw before him a strange, moving object, which he took to be some large animal, a dog, a pig. He could not name it. Perhaps it was a bear. He had seen pictures of bears, but knew of nothing to their discredit, and had vaguely wished to meet one. But something in form or movement of this object, some thing in the awkwardness of its approach, told him that it was not a bear, and curiosity was stayed by fear. He stood still, and as it came slowly on, gained courage every moment, for he saw at least it had not the long, menacing ears of the rabbit. Possibly his impressionable mind was half-conscious of something familiar in its shambling, awkward gait. Before it had approached near enough to resolve his doubts, he saw that it was followed by another and another. To right and to left there were many more. The whole open space about him was alive with them, all moving toward the brook. They were men. They crept upon their hands and knees. They used their hands only, dragging their legs. They used their knees only, their arms hanging idle at their sides. They strove to rise to their feet, but fell prone in the attempt. They did nothing naturally and nothing alike, save only to advance foot by foot in the same direction. Singly, in pairs and in little groups, they came on through the gloom, some halting now and again while others crept slowly past them, then resuming their movement. They came by dozens and by hundreds. As far on either hand as one could see in the deepening gloom, they extended, and the black wood behind them appeared to be inexhaustible. The very ground seemed in motion toward the creek. Occasionally one who had paused did not again go on, but lay motionless. He was dead. Some, pausing, made strange gestures with their hands, erected their arms, and lowered them again, clasped their heads, spread their palms upward, as men are sometimes seen to do in public prayer. Not all of this did the child note. Not all of this did the child note. It is what would have been noted by an elder observer. He saw little but that these were men, yet crept like babes. Being men, they were not terrible, though unfamiliarly clad. He moved among them freely, going from one to another and peering into their faces with childish curiosity. All their faces were singularly white, and many were streaked and gouted with red. Something in this, something too, 
perhaps, in their grotesque attitudes and movements, reminded him of the painted clown whom he had seen last summer in the circus, and he laughed as he watched them. But on and ever on they crept, these maimed and bleeding men, as heedless as he of the dramatic contrast between his laughter and their own ghastly gravity. To him it was merely a spectacle. He had seen his father's negroes creep around upon their hands and knees for his amusement, had ridden them so, making believe they were his horses. Now he approached one of these crawling figures from behind, and with an agile movement mounted it astride. The man sank upon his breast, recovered, flung the small boy fiercely to the ground, as an unbroken colt might have done, then turned upon him a face that lacked a lower jaw. From the upper teeth to the throat was a great red gap, fringed with hanging shreds of flesh and splinters of bone. The unnatural prominence of nose, the absence of chin, the fierce eyes, gave this man an appearance of a great bird of prey, crimsoned in throat and breast by the blood of his quarry. The man rose to his knees, the child to his feet. The man shook his fist at the child. The child, terrified at last, ran to a tree nearby got upon the farther side of it, and took a more serious view of the situation. And so the clumsy multitude dragged itself slowly and painfully along in hideous pantomime, moved forward down the slope like a swarm of great black beetles, with never a sound of going, in silence profound, absolute. Instead of darkening, the haunted landscape began to brighten, through the belt of trees beyond the brook shone a strange red light, the trunks and branches of the trees making a black lacework against it. It struck the creeping figures and gave them monstrous shadows, which caricatured their movements on the lit grass. It fell upon their faces, touching their whiteness with a ruddy tinge, accentuating the stains with which so many of them were freaked and maculated. It sparkled on their buttons and bits of metal in their clothing. Instinctively, the child turned toward the glowing splendor and moved down the slope with his horrible companions. In a few moments had passed the foremost of the throng, not much of a feat considering his advantages. He placed himself in the lead, his wooden sword still in hand, and solemnly directed the march, conforming his pace to theirs, and occasionally turning as if to see that his forces did not straggle. Surely such a leader never before had such a following. Scattered about upon the ground, now slowly narrowing by the encroachment of this awful march to water, were certain articles to which, in the leader's mind, were coupled no significant associations. An occasional blanket tightly rolled lengthwise, doubled, and the ends bound together with a string. A heavy knapsack here, and there a broken rifle. Such things, in short, as were found in the rear of retreating troops. The spore of men flying from their hunters. Everywhere near the creek, which here had a margin of lowland, the earth was trodden into mud by the feet of men and horses. An observer of better experience in the use of his eyes would have noticed that these footprints pointed in both directions. The ground had been twice passed over, in advance and in retreat. 
A few hours before, these desperate, stricken men, with their more fortunate and now distant comrades, had penetrated the forest in thousands. Their successive battalions, breaking into swarms and reforming in lines, had passed the child on every side, had almost trodden on him as he slept. The rustle and murmur of their march had not awakened him. Almost within a stone's throw of where he lay they had fought a battle, but all unheard by him were the roar of musketry, the shock of the cannon, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. He had slept through it all, grasping his little wooden sword with perhaps a tighter clutch in unconscious sympathy with his martial environment, but as heedless of the grandeur of the struggle as the dead who had died to make the glory. The fire beyond the belt of woods on the further side of the creek, reflected to earth from the canopy of its own smoke, was now suffusing the whole landscape. It transformed the sinuous line of mist into the vapor of gold. The water gleamed with dashes of red, and red too were many of the stones protruding above the surface. But that was blood. The less desperately wounded had stained them in crossing. On them, too, the child now crossed with eager steps. He was going to the fire. As he stood upon the farther bank, he turned about to look at the companions of his march. The advance was arriving at the creek. The stronger had already drawn themselves to the brink and plunged their faces into the flood. Three or four who lay without motion appeared to have no heads. At this, the child's eyes expanded with wonder. Even his hospitable understanding could not accept a phenomena implying such vitality as that. After slaking their thirst, these men had not had the strength to back away from the water, nor to keep their heads above it. They were drowned. In rear of these, the open spaces of the forest showed the leader as many formless figures of his grim command as at first, but not nearly so many were in motion. He waved his cap for their encouragement and smilingly pointed with his weapon in the direction of the guiding light, a pillar of fire to this strange exodus. Confident of the fidelity of his forces, he now entered the belt of woods, passed through it easily in the red illumination, climbed a fence, ran across a field, turning now and again to coquette with his responsive shadow, and so approached the blazing ruin of a dwelling, desolation everywhere. In all the wide glare, not a living thing was visible. He cared nothing for that. The spectacle pleased, and he danced with glee in imitation of the wavering flames. He ran about, collecting fuel, but every object that he found was too heavy for him to cast from the distance to which the heat limited his approach. In despair, he flung in his sword, a surrender to the superior forces of nature. His military career was at an end. Shifting his position, his eyes fell upon some outbuildings which had an oddly familiar appearance, as if he had dreamed of them. He stood considering them with wonder when suddenly the entire plantation, with its enclosing forest, seemed to turn as if upon a pivot. His little world swung half around. The points of the compass were reversed. He recognized the blazing building as his own home. For a moment, he stood stupefied by the power of that revelation, then ran with stumbling feet, making a half-circuit of the ruin. 
There, conspicuous in the light of the conflagration, lay the dead body of a woman. The white face turned upward, the hands thrown out and clutched full of grass, the clothing deranged, the long, dark hair in tangles and full of clotted blood. The greater part of the forehead was torn away, and from the jagged hole the brain protruded, overflowing the temple, a frothy mass of gray, crowned with clusters of crimson bubbles, the work of a shell. The child moved his little hands, making wild, uncertain gestures. He uttered a series of inarticulate and indescribable cries, something between the chattering of an ape and the gobbling of a turkey, a startling, soulless, unholy sound, the language of a devil. The child was a deaf mute. Then he stood motionless, with quivering lips, looking down upon the wreck. I'd like to end this episode by wishing everybody a happy Thanksgiving, and until next time. Hey, do you like books? Do you know someone who likes books? I'm going to guess if you're listening to this podcast, the answer to one or both of those questions is yes. Well, as the holiday season approaches, sometimes it can be hard to find those unique gifts. Well, I have a solution for you. I want to present to you Shelf Life Books and Games. They can be found at Shelf Life Rare. It's an eBay store. They have a wonderful selection of signed and limited edition sci-fi and fantasy books, as well as some first editions. Their stock changes on a fairly regular basis, so it's a good idea to keep checking back from time to time, and you never know what kind of little hidden gem you may find floating around there. If you're interested in the game Magic the Gathering, they also have Magic the Gathering graded magic cards. They have all slabbed cards and rare BGS graded cards. Now, I'll admit, I don't know what that means, but they assure me if you're into Magic the Gathering, you will know what that means, and they have a great selection. So, if you're looking for a rare or unique gift, go on over to Shelf Life Rare at eBay and check out their selection. You never know what you may find. You can find the link to their store in our show notes.